This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Good morning. It's Monday, October the 30th, 2023. Welcome to Now with Dave Brown, coming to you on AMI-tv. I'm Dave Brown. Let's hit the horns and go. Coming up on the show today, Air Canada is under scrutiny for not having appropriate employees on the ground at the Las Vegas airport to offer accessibility services. Michelle McQuig of the Canadian Press will have more on the story. Halloween is less than 24 hours away. How can you make your house more inclusive for trick-or-treaters? Rich Padulo from Treat Accessibly will offer some tips and tricks. And Apple's October event is going down tonight. Stephen Scott from Double Tap gives you the lowdown, a little bit of reckless speculation with Stephen Scott. Always enjoy that. Let's begin the show with the top story of the day. There's a whole bunch of stories from labor and the economy to share with you. The company that oversees operations in the St. Lawrence Seaway says ships are expected to start moving today after it reached a tentative deal with Unifor to end a strike. The deal was struck late last night. Unifor is bringing it to members for a ratification vote. The premiers of Ontario and Quebec had called on the federal government to intervene if mediated talks failed to bring about an end to the walkout. There are some more labour-related stories to share with you, but you'll have to wait for Michelle McQuig of the Canadian Press to stop by in about 10 minutes. Elsewhere in the economy, specifically your pocketbook, Equifax Canada survey data shows housing is a top concern for Canadians. Three in 10 respondents say they had to seek additional income to cover higher mortgage or rent payments. Almost 20% say, say they're in a precarious financial situation and may need to move. Equifax notes that young Canadians are more likely to have missed a bill payment this year. In a related story, higher mortgage rates are pushing more people to seek private loans. Rob Westgate files this report about private lenders. While private mortgages can be appropriate in certain situations, they're generally considered a lender of last resort in the mortgage world because of their high fees and interest rates. A so-called exit strategy from a private mortgage could be refinancing, using extra cash on hand to reduce or pay off the loan, or outright selling the property. Francis Hinojosa, co-founder and chief executive at Tribe Financial, says private mortgages have become more prevalent as home prices have skyrocketed, and more recently, borrowing costs have jumped. But she says they are still meant to be a short-term solution only, and should only be used on an as-needed basis. Rob Westgate, the Canadian Press. So there's obviously a little bit of a bias in that story because the information being shared with you is coming from the mortgage broker industry and the mortgage industry. What that report failed to leave out is the reason why people have to seek out a private lender mortgage is because private lenders don't do the same due diligence as a major bank. Last week on the show, 
after the mortgage rate announcement came out, I did some of that math for you, talking about what your standard mortgage loan is going to look like based on current rates. Don't forget about the policy that's in place here by the federal government that says to be approved for a mortgage, not only do you need to meet the financial requirements based on the rate of today, but pass a stress test of 2% higher. So when you're talking about 8, 9, 10% stress rate tests on average home prices that are running in the $800,000 range or million dollar range if you're in Toronto or Vancouver, then what are you really talking about here? People are having to seek out private loans because of institutional controls that exist. Now, by the way, those institutional controls are meant to stop utter economic collapse. That's why they came into place in Canada after the mortgage crisis in the United States. But that's just a little bit of context that's missing from a report like that. I think if you uh, talk to a lot of people, they'll tell you they are seeking out loans from private lenders based on the current economic conditions. Here's one from the technology file. U.S. President Joe Biden has signed an executive order to guide the further development of artificial intelligence. Karen Travers explains. President Biden today is issuing an executive order that the White House is calling the strongest set of actions ever taken by any government on artificial intelligence, safety, security and trust. Deputy Chief of Staff Bruce Reed says in a statement, quote, it's the next step in an aggressive strategy to do everything on all fronts to harness the benefits of AI and mitigate the risks. The executive order requires AI developers share their safety test results and other critical information with the U.S. government. The order also establishes standards for detecting AI generated content content and authenticating official content, including watermarking. Karen Travers, ABC News, Washington. And from the climate change and science files, they merge together on this one. Drought in the Amazon rainforest have led to archaeological discoveries. Chuck Sievertson has more. Reaching historic lows because of drought, waters of the major tributary that runs through the Brazilian Amazon, the Rio Negro. Carvings previously hidden underwater are now seen for the first time in millennia, say archaeologists. Deeply etched into the black rock along the riverbanks are human faces, animals, and other figures. They're 1,000 to 2,000 years old, says Brazil's National Historic and Artistic Heritage Institute. It says other rocks at the site may have been used to sharpen arrows and stone tools. Chuck Sievertson, ABC News. Climate change is not necessarily a good thing. Let's be very clear about that. It is super cool, though, when you see those moments of human history, the history of civilizations uh, coming together and showing evidence on the riverbed. So let's take a victory in the overall loss that's going on in the greater picture of climate change. That's your look at the news. Here come the daily polls at Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. On Friday, the conversation was all about local bank branches and there were a couple closing in rural Newfoundland and Labrador, and it begged this question. What is your preferred method of banking? 39% of you said over the phone. I'm actually surprised that number is so high, but 39% of you said over the phone. Only 6% of you said at the branch, and 55% of you said online works for me. Over on Facebook, Taryn writes in, at the branch, I like communicating with people and not machines. And Karen writes in, I do a lot online, but I try to go into our local branch a few times a year so they have a reason to keep it open in such a small 
town. Thank you to everyone who got involved at Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. Let's see what you have to say today in about... 20 minutes, there's going to be a conversation about Disability Employment Awareness Month and perhaps some of the lack of uptake going on across the corporate world. Kelly Braun Johnson of Completely Inclusive will share their thoughts, but I'm asking you this before you get to that. How effective do you think awareness days and months are? Very, somewhat, or not at all. At Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. Awareness campaigns. Elizabeth Moeller, I have to confess, I would say there's probably quite a bit of fatigue around awareness campaigns, and it's getting harder and harder for any single one of them to stand out, because when every day, or every week, or every month is an awareness week, then nothing is an awareness day, an awareness month, or an awareness week. It's an awareness world out there. Yeah, I, I would have to say I'm in this somewhat camp. I feel like a lot of the times for me, there's two problems. They don't have a call to action. Like, I think the knowledge is good. It's like, okay, but what, what do we do with this knowledge? Like, how do we mobilize this? And I feel like there's a lot of virtue signaling. So it's like, oh, I'm going to, as a corporation, I'm going to, you know, engage in this awareness day and I'm going to do something as a corporation. It's going to, um, you know, possibly I'm, I'm, help I'm, my brand. I'm, I'm going to put a rainbow image over my corporate logo and there you go. I've helped. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. And and, I, and I'm all for that, but I'm also for what are you doing beyond that? Because if it's virtue signaling, then it actually can do a lot of harm, right? And this is something when I'm talking to people, uh, you know, about should we do an awareness day? It's like, okay, but what are we doing beyond this? And if the answer is, well, nothing, we do this once a year, then maybe we really need to think what we're doing and why we're doing it. Yeah, when yeah. you don't have a call to action or you don't yeah, have some kind of huge. principled focus, at that point yeah. you're just creating fake allyship, right? You're creating a scenario where it's easy for people to say, yep. we support this, but don't do anything to support it. And, and I don't trust that. You know, that's where I get to be like, can I trust you as a corporation or as an entity? And the answer is generally not. And, and I also think beyond that, like I would say beyond even just a call to action, an individualized action with meaningful impact, I would also mm -hmm. say it's actually at this point where if every day is an awareness day and all they're asking you to do is maybe yeah. change the color of your shirts or put a rainbow logo on, yep. at that point you're not necessarily really calling to action, you're just asking for something very simple that's going to get lost in the mix. When I think about one of the most popular awareness campaigns of all time, it was the Ice Bucket Challenge. And yes. why did that work? There was a virality to it. Yes, it was performative. I'm not going to lie. It was performative. And a lot of people just got really excited to pour ice over their faces or over their heads or do whatever they were doing. But there was something about that that made it deeply shareable and deeply connectable. You know, Marco Pasqua and I did a, a rock, paper, scissor challenge a couple weeks ago for uh, this. I believe it was the Cerebral Palsy Association of British Columbia. And at least there, there's an opportunity to play a game, film it, and send it out. I, I'm someone who gets a little concerned about the performative nature of social media. Yeah, me too. But if you're tokenistic. But if you're going to leverage social media, then you actually have to leverage it in a way that people use social media. Yeah.
Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I hear everything you're saying. And I think I would just add to that, that it's, it's really harmful. I think when awareness campaigns are designed by uh, groups or people who maybe don't experience whatever the, um, the ism is, right? So just really thinking strategically about who's even designing the campaign and whose voices are being heard and amplified. And yeah, like you said, I think it's really important to, to think about the meaning because they can feel, like I said, there's a lot of virtue signaling. It can be tokenistic and it can do a lot of harm if it's not done well. Yeah, I would also say it's time for maybe uh, more broadly speaking for maybe we don't need to have like international substitute teachers day. Like maybe it's time for certain uh, individuals or uh, <laughs> I didn't certain even know that was a day. I, I, I don't know if it is, but I'm sure it is. You know, okay, maybe, you, okay, know okay. you know, what, Elizabeth. You know what I'm going to do at some point during what one of the one of the commercial breaks uh, during the show today. I'm going to pull up precisely what awareness days and weeks it are. And when you, it is, it are. I don't know. English is hard. I, maybe it should be learn to speak English day for Dave Brown. But uh, maybe <laughs> during it's a your Monday. I'll give you that. It's a Monday. It's a Monday. Come on, come on. It's maybe during your entertainment report, we can uh, go through a couple of the uh, days, weeks, oh, and months that uh, okay. were included right now. Elizabeth, thank you for your thoughts on this. Thank I appreciate you, it. Talk to you a little bit later in the hour. In the meantime, you can vote on the poll at Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. You can also get involved via email, feedback at ami.ca, feedback at ami.ca, or pick up the phone and give the show a call, one 509-4545. The question, how effective do you think Awareness Days, months and weeks are? Awareness campaigns. Let your voice be heard. Make me aware of your thoughts on the issue. Coming up after the break, Air Canada is under scrutiny for not having appropriate employees on the ground at the Las Vegas airport to offer accessibility services. Michelle McQuig of the Canadian Press will have more on this story. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Stop me if you've heard this one before. Airlines really struggle with their accessibility policies and procedure. Air Canada is in the crosshairs again. Michelle McQuig is the weekend news editor at the Canadian Press. Michelle has the latest on an airline accessibility fail. Hey, good morning, Michelle. Good, good morning, Dave. Michelle, it's 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 an old news story, but it's always uh, new whenever it happens. What are the relevant details on this Air Canada flight to Las Vegas? Yeah, yeah I, I wish I could say that this will come as a shock to most of our listeners, but it won't because I'm sure some of you have experienced things like it in the past. Uh, in this case, we have a gentleman from Prince George, British Columbia, named Rodney Hodgins, who is a wheelchair user and who took a flight to Las Vegas with his wife in August to celebrate a wedding anniversary. And when they got there, typically, apparently, Air Canada employs some kind of third-party agency to help uh, people with mobility devices off their aircraft. And in this case, uh, no one was available. And apparently, a flight attendant asked Rodney Hodgins, can you make your way off the plane by yourself? And he said, uh, no, I cannot do that because I don't have my wheelchair here. As Again, many of you know wheelchairs are typically treated as luggage and packed away in the cargo hold. So no, he would not have had access to his wheelchair. He was asked this a second time, 
And at that point, he said, this is ridiculous. Clearly no one's coming to help. And what he wound up doing was dragging himself off the plane. He had his wife hold on to his legs and he used his upper body strength to propel himself oh down the gosh. aisle to the front of the aircraft. It's it truly like it's it. And he, he called it dehumanizing. And I, I doubt very much that anyone will quarrel with that characterization. Uh, yeah. When, when they talk about like having uh, treated with dignity when you have disability, I would say that's mm-hmm. probably about uh, the least bit of dignified uh, as it can get. And Michelle, you, you rightly identified that one of the bigger, broader issues here is access to wheelchairs on planes or mobility devices on planes and making the relevant adjustments to make sure either a wheelchair user can stay in their own wheelchair on a plane or having at least some semblance of mobility devices available to people. But leaving that aside, uh, that's that's a human right. That's a human that's rights. That, that's yep. a human rights yep. uh, case all in and of itself. But how has the airline responded? The airline has responded a, a couple of different ways. They put out a statement saying that they're they're going to be reevaluating their um, third party partnerships in Las Vegas specifically. They didn't make many mention of any other routes or systemic adjustments, but they are going to look at the situation in Las Vegas. Uh, they did reach out to Rodney Hodgins with an offer of a $2,000 voucher, uh, which he's not particularly interested in. He, he's much more interested in... The voucher, yeah, so, so I can dehumanize mm-hmm. myself again. <laughs> he didn't say quite like that, but uh, his indication is that he, he's more interested in seeing them put that money towards improving their processes and their systems. Um, so that's been on the Air Canada front, but there has actually been some interesting responses at the federal level. Mm. Uh, yeah. Uh, Stephanie Cadieux, the, the Chief Accessibility Officer of Canada, apparently has reached out to him. Uh, she, in fact, tweeted earlier this month, some of you probably saw, that she had an experience of Air Canada and, and a missing wheelchair in her case. Um, she, he's also expected to speak to the Canadian Transportation Agency. They're, they, they reached out and they think they've got a call set up for today or tomorrow, sometime this week, anyhow. So... Um, in addition to Air Canada getting in touch, uh, he's heard from even higher up the chain. Yeah, the CTA just put out a ruling about a month ago about uh, about uh, airplanes, uh, airlines, and wheelchair access, and their the onus and obligation of airlines to take care of mobility devices and make sure their planes are appropriate for mobility devices. So there, there's a lot going on at the regulatory mm-hmm. side here, and stories like this are only a further highlighting of that. And Michelle, not that this has to do with anything. You don't need to comment on this. I'll move off it right away. Uh, Air Canada reported a $1.25 billion profit last quarter. Let's leave it right there and uh, move on to uh, the labor side of the equation because there's a bit of breaking news this morning. You and I, not to pull back the curtain too much, you and I were emailing <laughs> last night at about 7 p.m. Eastern time and saying, okay, we've got to talk about these auto workers negotiations. We've got to talk about Stellantis and Unifor and the possibility of a strike. And at midnight, there was a strike. And as of this morning, there is some breaking news. So what's the there latest? Sure is. <laughs> So uh, the strike that wasn't, uh, it lasted maybe for about eight hours, but it has now been called off because the union, Unifor, and Stellantis have renounced that they reached a tentative deal. Uh, what happened was the strike deadline for about 8,200 uh, workers in this case, so a pretty substantial number. Um, the strike deadline for them to go off the job was 11.59 last night. And uh, in fact, that strike deadline passed. Uh, there was an announcement that those plans would move forward and those 8,200 people were on strike as of midnight. But uh, this morning, not too long after 8 o'clock, came word that they had in fact kept talking through the night. And here we are with a deal. Uh, we don't have any details yet, but 
there is a deal. So now the strike is off. I'm not even sure if they would have had a chance to assemble a picket line in any places. Yeah. Um, but uh, but here we are. And this it's worth noting, too, that this is pretty similar to what happened with Unifor and Ford, who had a Unifor had a really remarkable run with this negotiation uh, effort with the automakers. And I'm sure we'll talk about that in a sec. But it was very similar at Ford. There was a there was there was technically a strike and it was called off very quickly as the negotiations kept going and a deal ultimately got hammered out. Yeah, in, in all three cases with the Canadian automakers, they either tiptoed right to the strike line. I believe that was the case with uh, General Motors. But Ford, I think it was, yeah. But, but Ford, Ford and Stellantis, they both had an official strike, but then it ended uh, fairly quickly. I actually I actually wonder as an employee what you do there on Sunday night. Like you got you got you have to set an alarm clock for Monday morning to potentially show up to work, uh, no matter whether there's a strike or not. Because at, at the rate things are going here, there, there there's no uh, there's no strike days. You got to got to make sure that the snooze alarm is not uh, being hit too many times on a Monday morning. Or at least that you're on whatever uh, you know group WhatsApp you need to to, to, to <laughs> yeah. abreast of things or, yeah. or uh, email lists or I, I'm sure. Unifor is a massive organization. I'm sure they have a very sophisticated communication apparatus to get the word out to members. But yeah, uh, yeah. you're right. That that's a bit of a logistical headache. Never, never turn off your alarm clock. Uh, Michelle, it, it actually, Unifor hit a couple late night deals last night, including with the St. Lawrence Seaway and updates on That's the story right. you had last week. But I'm, I, I, at this point, it looks like the overall labor picture in the North American auto industry is pretty much settled except for one holdout. Yeah. Um, General Motors, for, General General Motors in the United States. That, in that's, the United that's, States, that's, that's right. That's yeah. the only one left. The UAW hit deals with Stellantis and Ford. And at this point, it's it's just GM and the UAW. That's it. I mean, yeah. uh, like six weeks ago, there was the possibility of all six being out for an extended period. And now there's just one outlier. It's totally true. Yeah, it was a good weekend for Stellantis at the bargaining table. They got deals with UAW on Saturday and Unifor today. Uh, so that one's done and dusted for them entirely on both sides. And you're right. Um, so apparently in the United States and here, even though Unifor was pushing for and got major gains, like we're talking 20% salary increases in the cases of Ford and, uh, and GM, and, and, and among a number of other gains, we don't have details on the Stellantis contracts yet but we do know it's going to be patterned on a very similar premise uh and there's already indications that they got similar sorts of gains uaw apparently had an even steeper hill to climb the united auto workers is the union in the united states sorry i should have explained that sooner but uh yeah they had an even tougher road to hoe in that case because they had made bigger concessions over the years and had even steeper negotiations to navigate here. So mm-hmm. you're right. It's kind of remarkable that five out of six are done. And in Canada, it was really considered a huge win because any kind of labor disruptions were so minimal as to almost be a blip. Uh, mm-hmm. Like to be honest with you, I'd, I'd almost, I was rereading the Stellantis copy today and I had almost forgotten that there had been a, a brief strike at GM in Canada. Um, Ford was the one that went right to the line, I think. Uh, yeah, but yeah. either way, a, a Lana Payne and Unifor, their national president, um, are probably feeling pretty good right now because this was a huge, huge goal for them this year, and they achieved it with limited disruptions. Michelle, one more labor story to talk about. Another labor issue brewing, this time in the public sector, though. What's going on with the possibility of a Quebec public sector strike? Great question. Um, this is a long-standing negotiation. What's happening in Quebec is that all the public sector workers are represented by a few, a handful of very large union federations that ultimately represent about 420,000 public sector workers of all stripes. You've got education workers and government workers and education workers and all kinds of categories captured here. Um, 
what's happened though is that months like more than a year's worth of negotiations have now led to the point where the union has rejected the province's latest contract offer and they are threatening to start ramping up strike action as of early next month um it, what that means in their case is that they're looking at a one-day strike on November 6th. So with 420,000 people, though, that's still uh, quite an impactful move. Um, other unions are thinking of one, one or two-day strikes on November 8th and 9th. And if those continue and if there's still no deal reached, they have not taken a general strike off the table. And of mm -hmm. course, if that were to happen, 420,000 workers, uh, then we have quite a serious disruption of a lot of services in Quebec. Yeah, it's a few weekends in a row they've actually held demonstrations across the province. So, so it's it's not just that oh they've they've given their they've given their union the possibility for a mandate. They've been oh out no, there the mandate's in hand. They've yeah, got the yeah, mandate. yeah. They, like they, but they've also been they've been walking the streets on the weekend. Like like it's it's a few weekends in a row they've taken to the streets to talk about this. So there there there's been lots of demonstrations. The, the, the sector is already speaking up. Absolutely, and more than that. All the federations that are negotiating, negotiating all those deals have gone to the memberships and they secured strike mandates preemptively in the 90% range every time. Yeah. Sometimes even sometimes even higher. So, yeah, they, they, are, they have gone to the table with those strike mandates in hand. The province has known about this for quite some time. Like I said, this was a process that was unspooling very slowly. Things got really rolling on the negotiation front late 2022. So there's been wow. lots of time wow. to to navigate this and to come to a deal. Um, there's been movement. Uh, the province is pushing back a little bit on on some of the. They feel the union's been a bit hasty in rejecting this particular deal that was just tabled yesterday, and the union news conference happened quite shortly after it was tabled. Um, so there has been progress. The province has has moved some. There, in terms of, if we're looking at the baseline issue of wages, of course, there's many, many other issues at play here. But if we're looking just at wages, uh, they're still pretty far apart, though. The province is offering, uh, they call it a 14.8% increase over a five-year term. The union says it ultimately works out to be more like 10.3, and that it's considerably less than raises that legislature members gave themselves earlier this year and right. a whole lot less than contract deals that were reached with, with or excuse me, that were not reached with um, police in the province. Uh, they were being offered wages much higher than what the public sector workers were being offered and that deal was still rejected. So mm -hmm. uh, it seems like there's still a certain ways apart. Michelle, thank you for all these updates. It's much appreciated. My pleasure. That's Have a great week. Uh, we will talk to you on Friday. That's Michelle McQuig, weekend news editor at the Canadian Press. Coming up next, Disability Employment Awareness Month continues. Do you feel like the message is being received widely? There's been lots of conversation here. Have you been hearing it elsewhere? Kelly Braun Johnson has some opinions to share. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Almost forgot where I was. Typical of a Monday. Disability Employment Awareness Month rolls on. There has been plenty of conversation on the mighty airwaves of AMI. Some really thoughtful conversations about inclusive hiring protocols. Several folks have talked about the merit of entrepreneurship for people with disabilities. 
Here's the thing. Does it feel like the message is being received more widely? Or is there maybe some inclusion fatigue amongst the general population? Let's explore that idea with Kelly Braun Johnson. Kelly is the founder of Completely Inclusive. Hey, good morning, Kelly. Nice to chat with you once again. Hi, good morning, Dave. So, Kelly, what are what are your observations about the general interest in Disability Employment Awareness Month? So, you know, we've talked about this uh, the last two years. We've talked about this on the show. And so it's been really interesting to compare um, the changes that have occurred over the last couple of years. Um, to me, I think this year, interest has really tanked. Um, I remember previous years where the CN Tower was being lit up and, and there was just I think a bit more recognition, um, but it's certainly something that I've seen and my colleagues who work in the same industry have seen kind of very similar things where the interest has kind of petered out. Why Why do you think that is? I, I've got a couple theories, but I wanna let you go first so I don't cannibalize your thoughts. So, well, I mean, I, th I think, I'm, I'm, I think something what you were hinting at the intro there that I think we're kind of on the same uh, theme. Um, but I do think that DEI and or IDEA, um, those concepts have kind of fallen out of favor again. Um, the trend that I've been seeing is that businesses have been cutting back um, on, on those kind of efforts. Um, and I think everyone is kind of trying to get things to so-called return to normal, um, uh, pre-pandemic kind of things. So they're not focusing on that. Um, I think they're not feeling the same pressure that they used to feel. Um, to be more inclusive. Um, and I think they're just not focusing on the, the idea that, that inclusion and equity really is the way forward, is the solution for that they should be putting their, their time and their efforts and their money into. This is probably deeply cynical in my theory in, in regards to the inclusion fatigue or why maybe the efforts have dried up a little bit. I, I would suggest and argue there, there's, there's been a lot of chatter about recession and economic slowdown. Maybe it has not been as drastic as some of the pundits wanted to make it about 12 months ago, but clearly there has been a slowing economically in the last 12 months. And despite all the research that suggests inclusion doesn't necessarily cost you all that much. It does feel like perhaps in moments of an economic slowdown, a lot of companies, especially large and medium-sized companies, just aren't going to make those kinds of investments, no matter how small they might be. They might just start thinking about the bottom line and the bottom line exclusively. And Kelly, I know that's so deeply cynical, but I do have that theory in, in what I'm thinking about in regards to sort of the larger corporate picture. I I mean, I 100% agree with you. This is not, it's kind of a depressing topic, but but it's, I think it's the truth. I think that's what's been happening. Um, and it's a shame because those, like you said, those economic realities, um, the pressures are real. I get that. But the lack of uh, putting that emphasis and putting the, the financial backing where it's important, I think businesses are really missing the point. They're not understanding how much um, return on investment, so to speak, that they will get if they actually do invest in things like inclusion, accessibility, diversity. Um, because the returns you get from that are, are human returns. This is, it's, it's, it's going to help the rest of society when they actually put the money where it is really important to put.
Yeah, it's it's it it's it goes back to this idea of it being a little bit short-sighted and so many times that's how companies are going to look at things in a very short-sighted way. But you've talked about this before, the idea that disability inclusion is more than just a bottom line argument. There's plenty of organizations that will make the bottom line argument, but it goes well beyond the bottom line argument, especially when you're talking about building something in terms of a sustainable way. And that's where it really strikes me as short-term thinking. Right, right. I mean, I, I feel like I'm saying the same thing over and over, uh, sorry. And over again. <laughs> but it's true. But I mean, that's that is really. I think that's really how it is. I might have talked myself out of some work because I'm I'm very consistent in this message, and I and I think it's reflecting the reality of what's happening in the business mm. world. Well, Kelly, just because other people aren't talking about it doesn't mean that you and I can't dive a little bit of deeper here because there are some important components of the inclusive employment picture, and you and I may as well tackle them together, and that's the issue of underemployment. People with disabilities in the workforce may still find themselves doing jobs there overqualified for, or there may not be a pathway for people to advance in a company. So how do you perceive the issue of underemployment for people with disabilities and even other equity-seeking groups? So, you know, I always love talking about intersectionality. So we have these huge social issues that spill over when we're talking about the problem of underemployment or unemployment of people with disabilities specifically. Um, I got some recent stats for this uh, from Pacific Coast University that state there are 1.4 million disabled people living in Canada, living in poverty in Canada right now, like 1.4 million. And the suicide rate for unemployed disabled people is 40 times higher than the general population. This is staggering. Um, and so I think society needs to understand and businesses need to understand that it's not just about the unemployment when we're talking about employment, the way that it spills over into other issues, um, the way that it affects society as a whole. Um, it's really important that we see this for the reality that it is, that it is a complex issue and there's a cascade of related issues that can occur. Um, so we're, if we're solving an employment issue, which is a single issue, we can't look at anything as a single issue, but if we do solve that issue, we take care of a lot of the other issues that can go along with it, like the poverty mm. and the food insecurity and the, the mental health. Um, but the reality is that we're still living in a society that stigmatizes disability. Um, and there's still businesses out there that are, if they do hire us, they say, you know, it's a charity, it's a charity case or, or, you know, um, they're doing us a favor. Um, and so we should be thankful for whatever we get if we do actually get hired. Um, mm. And it's it's just it's just the case where the the businesses have not changed their thinking to to show or to to demonstrate or to understand that we are equal um, and capable employees. And so this is a to me it's a huge social issue. Yeah, I, I think of it as, as a blockade. And as you pointed out, the, the poverty side of the equation is not simply people who may be on a social assistance program. There are a lot of people right now who are struggling, even if they have a job, right? The cost of living is really, really high. And just because somebody might have an entry-level position or have one of those sort of token created, I'm going to use the words that other folks use, the quote charity position as I throw up the, the air quotes in there, it doesn't necessarily mean that job is going to take them out of the overall poverty situation, which is why pathways 
to advance in a company are so important. Uh, I suppose you and I could also have a broader ethical conversation about paying a living wage, but let's put let's put that yeah. to the side. Let's put that to the side for a second. That's that's a whole different uh, fifteen minute conversation that, that you and I can have. But the pathways to advancement in a company really, really matter. What do you believe a company can do to create those pathways to chart a course for an employee to work their way up through a company's uh, uh, chain of command? So I think businesses need to create um, a very clear equitable, uh, equitable sorry, promotion plans and procedures. Um, I worked at a business early on in my days that that had a very clear path for promotion. They had standardized tests to achieve it, which, I mean, we can also have another discussion oh about standardized <laughs> tests. But because of the way that they did things, um, there was a lot more diversity within the leadership, um, which is really important because we need to see ourselves represented. Um, we always talk about, you know, um, grooming, grooming the next people, the, the ones that are coming up. Um, and in general, this happens when people choose or select people within the company that, who are like them already. Um, but if there are no, uh, there's no representation and it's hard to have a role model, it's hard to kind of get that um, advantage, you know? I'd say also the, the fact is right now, um, there's a great blog up on the Canadian Association for Supported Employment website. Um, and it talks about how there's only 0.8% of execs uh, in Canada are disabled, um, which is just, staggering. again, another one of these staggering stats that don't make any sense. Um, you know, that's not in line at all with the reality of disability in Canada, where we're at 24%. Um, so only 0.8 of execs in Canada um, are disabled. Um, how does that happen? How does, how do we get there? That doesn't, it doesn't make any sense. Um, so unless a business is actually looking to address this gap specifically and that they're looking to bring up and hire more or promote more equity-deserving demographics, this is not something that's going to change anytime soon. Kelly, I like what you say there about creating a clear identified pathway, right? Objective goals to say, if you do this, there's the opportunity for the possibility of a promotion. I also think about training opportunities because a lot of companies will tell you, oh yeah, there's all sorts of training opportunities for you to develop new skills. But here's the thing, you've got to kind of do that on your own time. Or hey, if you want to work shadow somebody, oh, you've got to kind of do that on your own time above and beyond the work you're already doing. Essentially giving the company Company free labor, and I and I always consider that to be a little bit of a dangerous trap because there's no assurances that doing that training is going to get you anywhere. It might just be you doing free free labor for your employer. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's dangerous too, right? Because only the privileged can really do that. That's not something that somebody can't necessarily take night classes uh, for all sorts of different reasons, other mm -hmm. responsibilities that they might have. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's just I not fair. Absolutely. Okay, Kelly, one last thought here. I know I know, it's been sort of this deeply <laughs> cynical, uh, depressing conversation today, and I'm not saying this question is any more uplifting, but may as well ask it as it stands. Normally, when someone wants a promotion or a chance to grow in their career, they're told, hey, switch companies, you know, like leverage your skills, go somewhere else. How would you apply the disability lens to that oh-so-common career advice? You know, I, I started writing this answer last night. I went to sleep and I woke up and I don't have any better solutions. <laughs> 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 because, because 
it's it's hard. And I feel like, again, I feel a bit bad. It's Monday morning. We're leaving it on a, on a bit of a bad note. Um, but, you know, the, again, let's talk about the reality. Um, the stakes are higher when uh, you're trying to jump to a different job. Uh, if, if you don't know that the other place is going to accommodate you or be accepting, you're taking a huge chance, a huge risk. So I totally understand that if you're already um, in a financially precarious situation, um, that you would stay where you know, hey, you know, it might not be the best, but things are working or I'm able to pay the, you know, I'm able to pay the minimum of my bills, that kind of thing. Um, and we, we just look at the the unemployment rates or the underemployment rates as well. Depending on the disability, they can be as high as 85%. Um, so they're, they're not, we're not in a position to take chances um, and to, to hope that the next place is going to pay better and be better uh, to us. Um, and then I thought of, yeah, you know, you spoke about entrepreneurship. That is often a solution, but it's not the solution for everyone, yeah. obviously. Um, that was definitely one of the solutions that I came up with um, for myself. But again, that's also a precarious financial situation to be in. So I don't have, like I said, I went to sleep on this. I woke up and I still don't have a good, a really good answer other than to say this is what the reality is. And unless um, a lot of things change, I don't see it changing very quickly. You know, Kelly, it's 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 okay if every now and then the reality of the situation is negative because I think as demotivating as it can be, it's also what motivates people like you and me to kind of get up every day and tackle this issue. So if I, if I was going to say there's some positivity to take into the overall negativity, it's that there's people like you out there in the world who are working hard every day. So even if today was a little bit of a bummer of a conversation, the reality is you're doing great work out there and keep it up. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. And I hope that also validating other people's experiences that they see that I'm not here to talk about sunshine and rainbows all the time. We need to validate the uh, real experience of people right now, and then we can help to lift them up. That's well put. Kelly, thank you for this. Have a great day. Thanks, you too. That's Kelly Braun Johnson, the founder of Completely Inclusive. Let's uh, talk about some weather that also might not be of the happiest nature with Elizabeth Moeller. Elizabeth, people in Eastern and Atlantic Canada are getting the boots out. They're getting their boots out. They're gearing up for a white Halloween, perhaps like the ones they used to know, with five to 10 centimeters of snow. People in the Maritimes, they started their weekends, not unlike us, in shorts and t-shirts, but they're gonna need some warmer clothes. Get out those parkas because a sudden change in weather is going to make it much colder and bring the first snow of the season this week. Places like New Brunswick and Nova Scotia and PEI might get five to 10 centimeters of snow before that weather settles on down. And that cold weather, it's going to stay for a while, even into that second week of November. Sorry to be the bearer of bad news. Temperatures are going to drop a lot before that first snow of the season. That strong cold front that was experienced yesterday on Sunday is going to make temperatures fall by as much as 15 degrees. Some places might only reach single-digit temperatures. Starting today, there is a good chance for the first snow of the season in eastern Canada. And because it's colder than usual, parts of New Brunswick, North Nova Scotia, and PEI will see snow. And some areas are going to get accumulating snow. So 
be prepared, get out the boots and the hats, make sure you are dressed warm for Halloween because yeah. snow, as scary as it is, is coming. <laughs> yeah, that's already that's already the case in uh, Eastern Ontario, Western Quebec, Montreal, the snow's, yeah. the snow's already on the ground and they are uh, unhappy. Uh, Elizabeth. Okay, I like the first snowfall though, Dave. I'm on the camp of I love it. I, I just, something special about it, I have to say. Yeah, until it's special until you're sick of it. Elizabeth, thank you for this. Coming up after the break, Reptile is a film on Netflix. It stars Benicio Del Toro. It's a crime thriller. Kim Thistle will review it. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. When a real estate agent is murdered, everyone becomes a suspect. That's the premise of Reptile. It's a thriller on Netflix that stars Benicio Del Toro. Let's take a sneak peek from the film. So what happened? A cop questions a boyfriend. Investigators stand around a bare room. I walked in the front door. I called out for her. Hello? No answer. And then what? The boyfriend recalls his girlfriend on the floor, a knife stuck in her. Investigators stand around him. At a medical examiner's office. Can I show you something strange? The cop bites a woman's hand. That's a bite. Use the dentals that got Ted Bundy. Is there anyone you can think of who might have done this? A few nights ago, this guy showed up at my house acting strange. Strange in what way? The boyfriend tries to close the door, but the strange man sticks his foot in the way. The men eye each other and push at the door. Who do we like from this? I'll go with the boyfriend. I got the friend. I'll take the weirdo. I'm going with the ex-husband. Am I a suspect? Everyone is a suspect. Ooh, reptile slithering your way to a Netflix box near you. Entertainment critic Kim Thistle has thoughts on the film. Hey, good morning, Kim. Hey, howdy. I'm here in, ca- in um, costume for Halloween. <laughs> uh, Kim, uh, you are definitely in costume. What, what are you wearing? Tell me. Describe okay. it for me. Well, I'm meant to be a cow person, cowboy. I'm a cowboy because I do have a mustache. I got a penciled in mustache. <laughs> I forgot to shave today. I got lots of, you know, dot, 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 hair growth, a bra- um, straw hat, and a plaid shirt. So <laughs> I'm. I'm ready to, to wrangle up with me some cows or something. <laughs> <laughs> That's the right way they speak. Kim, Kim Thistle already in the holiday spirit. No, nothing like nothing like a cowboy in Newfoundland and Labrador. Y'all have livestock out there. That makes. Hey, you know we got them all over the range out here, right? The range off the cliffs is what we're having. Uh, noted prairie flower, Tim uh, Kim Thistle. Uh, okay, Kim, let's jump into the movie here. Reptile. Uh, a few right. critics have said the movie is a little little convoluted how did you find the plot of the movie you know they got it spot on convoluted like i was watching it thinking okay like they bring in other things that and i don't want to ruin it in case anyone wants yeah to no, spoilers. It, but, no spoilers no yeah, spoilers yeah. it was like 
well, why was that added there? That added nothing to the story. Like, you know, are we trying to make it into like a series? So then that let will show up later on that, you know, okay, introduce a different character. So convoluted, yes, and not really sure where they were going with it and why they added, you know, some of the characters. So like watching that screen clip that you just showed, I said, boy, that looks like a good movie, doesn't it? <laughs> but it's a little so, okay, Kim, I, I've got a little bit of like an artistic or structural question here, because sometimes in the thriller genre, it's deliberately going to be convoluted because it wants to keep the audience on the edge of their seat. There's a difference to me between convoluted and deliberately confusing. Where do you think that where do you think it landed between sort of those two uh, pivot points? Well, you know what? That's a good point. I'm glad you said that because as I'm watching it, I'm thinking, oh, God, I can't get into this. And I had mentioned to my sister, I said, I'm doing a movie review, Reptile. Oh, she said, I tried to watch that 20 minutes in. I had to shut it off. I'm like, and I said, well, I'm this far in and I need to be. And she said, maybe I'll go back and look at it. And so it was, you know, it left me thinking after. So I said, is that a sign of a good movie then? If I'm now saying, oh, yeah, I didn't see that coming. <laughs> Right. But as I'm watching, it's like, I got to watch this because Paul assigned this movie to me and <laughs> I got to do it. But it's painful in a way. But I will say the last one third of the movie, he started, you know, OK. And I, there are jumps and there are suspense. Like there were times that I went, oh, like I actually jumped in my seat. Oh, I didn't expect that. Mm. Okay, so so there's a little bit of merit there. If you can get through maybe a little bit of confusion off the front end, yeah. there's a little bit of a payoff at the back end. Right. As you look up and down the cast of this film, there's some really interesting names in the top billing spots. Benicio Del Toro, Justin Timberlake, and Alicia Silverstone. Alicia Silverstone, nice to see her making a comeback about uh, 20 years later. What did you think of their performances? Whose performance stood out to you? Well, I was trying to say, to pick one or the other, it was a bit hard. I really liked the interaction between Alicia Silverstone and Benito Del Toro. They were a married couple. Now, at first I'm thinking they don't look like, you know, they don't look like an, a couple that would be together. But they pull it off as in a caring, compassionate couple. And that's what I liked about it. Like, he would discuss with her his case and she would give him some input. And, and she... She could read him and knew when he was a bit off or something. So I, I like that part. Benito Del Toro, I never really any watched any movies with him. And I'm thinking, oh, he's kind of laid back, isn't he? Like he's he, like he's very, I don't want to think flat during the movie, but maybe that's his character, like very introspective. And as he's being the the, the detective, because he's the lead detective on the, it, a lot of things are eye contact does that make sense it's more him sizing somebody up and you can it's almost mm. like the wheels are turning in his head but he's just listening to you and sizing you up and then the other characters looking at him and, and you're wondering you know are they telepathically talking to one another like it's that, it's that kind of feeling for the movie well, with him what about Justin Timberlake? He's been in the movie game, the acting game, for about 20 years now. I would say he's actually a little bit of a sneaky, underrated actor. He typically will play the same-ish character, but I'd, I'd say he's a pretty good actor. How was his performance in uh, Reptile? I thought it was okay. Like, I don't think anything stood out. Like, you know, you you know he's suspicious. You know, he's the boyfriend, so he's the number one suspect for the movie. 
Okay, all right, fair enough. What about the uh, soundtrack and score? Uh, Paul Daniel says that caught your attention. You sent him a note about it. Why? Yes, because throughout the movie, I realized when we're leading up, I guess in a sense, it's almost like they're leading you into a suspenseful mo moment. But the like there was it was ominous, ominous music sometimes, and then there would be a dramatic and and it's like you increased the tension, like you sort of knew that something was going to happen. Well, obviously you're going into a house and you got your gun drawn and yeah, something's going to happen. But the music really suited the soundtrack. The okay. soundtrack. How's that? That's better. <laughs> I like that one. Okay, you mentioned before that a lot of uh, Benicio del Toro's performance was nonverbal. Yeah. So that's where something like audio description really comes in handy. How was the audio description in Reptile? And you know what? I really like the audio description, despite the movie not being that good. It was done by, let me make sure, International Digital Center. So you know how I love taking a piece out of a movie and, and describing it. Like this tells you, like, okay. Tom moves through the house with glistening eyes, his mouth hung open. So what does that tell you? If you hear that? Someone's it, in... Yeah, I mean, it, it suggests that somebody is 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 working their way through a space and they're a little bit aghast at what they're encountering. Yeah. Awesome. So that's exactly how he looked, right? So, you, you know, we, we just heard something and it's like, whoa... And I thought that was like they've truly got it. A lot of times the description was ahead of the action. So I knew before they, they moved into the scene that, uh, you know, they're going to walk through this door. He, like, he's still there and he's gone through, but they said he's gone through the door. I didn't mind that. I thought that was good because it told me or showed me that it was very well described. And the man that you talked about in the, the video clip, they kept calling him the scruffy man. So they described everybody a void, a void or a blonde woman and, and that type of thing. So spot on description. Kim, you gotta be quick on this one. Do you recommend reptile? Uh, no, not really. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I said, but then I'm still thinking about it. So perhaps, you know, if everyone, if you, if you like that kind of genre, you're right. It's hard to get a good homicide movie that makes you go a little bit of jump and things like that. Mm -hmm. You can. I hate to use the word suffered out for the first two thirds. <laughs> See what happens in the end. That's really not a glowing review, is it? <laughs> Stick with it for about an hour and a half, and I promise you there's going to be a reward at the end of the rainbow. Well, yes, Kim, exactly. ha happy Halloween. Great job on the costume. Glad you're in the spirit here. Thanks for the review. Have a great day. Thanks, you too. Take your happy Halloween. That's Kim Thistle with a review of Reptile. You can find it on Netflix, and it's rated R. In one minute, Elizabeth Moeller will reflect on the passing of actor Matthew Perry as part of the Entertainment Report. But first, Apple is showing off some new hardware. Mike Dubusky sets the table in Tech Trends. 9 to 5 Mac senior editor Zach Hall says for the most part, the tech world thought Apple was done with hardware events for the year. The rumors have been that Apple's finished introducing new products for the rest of the year and until maybe like next spring. So it's our surprise we have this pre-Halloween event. The event is scheduled for this evening and Apple's calling it scary fast. We think that there will be new Mac hardware as the focus. They're using the Finder face, the happy Mac face to kind of promote the event. Hall says they're expecting process 
browser updates for the iMac desktop and the MacBook Pro laptops. It's been nearly three years since Apple began the transition away from Intel processors in favor of its own chips. The thing with Apple Silicon chips is, is they've been using them in iPhones and iPads for years, and that lets Apple control sort of the, the speed of the experience and optimize for battery life. With Tech Trends, I'm Mike Dubusky, ABC News. Thank you very much, Mike. Stephen Scott of Double Tap will share his thoughts on the Apple event in about 20 minutes. But here's Elizabeth Moeller with the Entertainment Report. Elizabeth, a bit of sad news coming out of Hollywood, coming out of Hollywood this weekend with Matthew Perry, actor and friend star, uh, passing away. Yeah, he passed away on on Saturday, which is quite sad, at his home in L.A. And he passed away, unfortunately, uh, from drowning. And so far, reports are saying that there is no foul play. And interesting, I didn't realize Friends aired for so long. It aired for about 10 years on the on the mighty airwaves. And I think people are really feeling this impact around the world of his comedic genius and his style. Interestingly, too, Matthew Perry, he really um, he published a memoir um, called Friends, Love, Lovers, and the Big Terror. And that came out last year and on November 1st. So it's sort of timely in a sad way. Um, but Matthew Perry, you know, he also really was an advocate for um, de-stigma around mental health and mental illness. And he spoke quite openly about it. Um, so Dave, I just wanted to chat today about the show Friends and get your take. Um, an episode that stands out to you, a favorite Friends moment or episode or scene, something you're like, oh yeah, I'll always remember Friends because of, insert. Uh, the episode where Ross is wearing leather pants and he gets really sweaty and they uh, stick to his legs and he can't pull them up after Ouch. he goes to the bathroom on a date, I would say was my favorite uh, Friends episode. Um, oh. I, I, I do want to comment here about Matthew Perry a little bit, though. Normally, Elizabeth, the show doesn't do a lot of obituary talk because um, yeah. oftentimes when somebody passes, it's, it is it is sort of a blip. And if I'm not really connected to the person or I don't feel yeah. Connection. I don't really talk about it, so it happens rarely that that will bring these things to the table. Like for example, when Angela Lansbury died last year, I shared that because I used to love mm -hmm. Murder She Wrote and I loved Beauty and the Beast, oh, and I just felt yeah. like Angela Lansbury was a real loss. And the thing that really hit me this weekend about Matthew Perry is just how young he is. He's fifty. He was yeah. fifty-six years old, right? <laughs> yeah. There, there, yeah. There's there's something about when someone say in like their nineties uh, passes yeah. pass when someone say like their nineties passes away. You know, it, it's sad, but it's not a tragedy. When somebody passes in their 50s, it just, it really, like, it, for whatever reason, it just really hits me in, in the feels as as just someone who's gone too soon. Because Matthew Perry, for years after Friends, tried to do a lot of interesting stuff in the entertainment his industry. He did have some success with the whole Nine Yards film franchise. He did make a couple really interesting sitcoms with things like Mr. Sunshine. But for whatever reason, he just never managed to sort of sustain it outside of Friends. Yeah. And, yeah. and I think I think that's one of the things sort of across the Friends board where really outside of Jennifer Aniston, I think a lot of them would say they've had trouble really finding where they wanted to be after that show went off the air in 2004. Yeah, it was it was a real like icon in in um, that era. Like it was definitely like Thursday nights. Everybody would turn on their TV. It was on at I think like eight thirty. And I I remember the Friends finale because I was at an age then where it was you know appropriate for me to watch it. And it was just like it really did feel like the end of an era. People had like Friends finale parties, and there was you know people in my circle dressed up, and it just it felt like like literally like a friend now was missing because people really identified with the. Show 
show in a lot of ways. And I think, you know, you touched on some of the really, the, the interesting work and the important work that, that Matthew Perry did. And I just want to kind of talk about, um, you know, mental illness, because he talked quite openly about that. And, and how do you see that that might have um, addressed some of the stigma around mental illness? Because he, he wasn't shy about that. I, I think the more people who openly talk about what they're going through in a real and honest way yeah. when it comes to mental yeah. health or addiction is going to be a valuable thing. Um, I, I, I would I would sort of leave it there. It, it, it sort of relates to what Kelly Braun Johnson was talking about in her segment a few minutes ago on the show, where sometimes you have to be honest about the world and you can't sugarcoat yeah. everything. And being honest about what you're going through and sharing your experience can be really valuable, but it also takes a lot of vulnerability because it also Absolutely. means that when you pass away early, it means that a lot of people on social media are cruel with that stuff and yeah. took, a, and and took a lot of slam dunks at, at Matthew yeah. Perry's expense this weekend. Absolutely. And, you know, Dave, I think this is, it's really resonating with me because I think sometimes we have, it's important to remember that these are people, like sometimes we see these actors on a screen and it's easy to kind of imagine the lifestyle that people might have, but that, you know, these are, these are people and, and a lot of folks are dealing with some really tough stuff, um, actor, actress or not. So I, I appreciate when anybody in sort of that public space can be very open and say like, this is real and I'm struggling with this. Yeah. Elizabeth, thank you for your thoughts on this. You'll come back in about a half an hour or so on the show I'll but for here. now Thank we you. just for now we just throw to break and remember the life and work of Matthew Perry this is now with Dave Brown on AMI TV Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. I'm Dave Brown. It's Monday, October the 30th, 2023. Coming up in the second hour of the show, Halloween, less than 24 hours away. What can you do to make your house more inclusive and accessible for trick-or-treaters? Rich Padulo from Treat Accessibly will offer up some tips and tricks. And Apple October's event is going down tonight. Stephen Scott from Double Tap will give you some insights, but the hour begins with the regional news update. Starting in the prairies, Alberta's fall legislative session starts today. The creation of a provincial pension plan will be front and center. Government House leader Joseph Schau says any talk of leaving the CPP is just preliminary. I think it's important to make it very clear to Albertans that should we move forward with a pension, it's going to be with their with their uh, support, via referendum. So putting in legislation just strengthens our, our, our case that we do want to hear from Albertans. Opposition, opposition leader Rachel Notley is looking forward to asking a whole bunch of questions about the province's plan. They've been spreading misinformation. They've been spending uh, taxpayer dollars to campaign to them, to persuade them, using facts which are not real. Federal, provincial and territorial finance ministers will be meeting to discuss Alberta leaving the CPP. Over to Ontario. Ontario is lowering the age for publicly funded breast cancer screenings from 50 to 40. Health Minister Sylvia Jones says the expansion will mean an additional 130,000 mammograms are completed in the province each year. The decision follows a draft recommendation from the U.S. 
Preventative Services Task Force earlier this year. Starting in the fall of 2024, women between the ages of 40 and 74 can self-refer for a mammogram every two years. The ministry says that between now and next fall, clinics that offer breast cancer screening will hire new staff and work with the government to develop a public reporting system. And finally, in the Atlantic region, things are getting testy at the Nova Scotia legislature. Lisa Laporte takes a closer look. Premier Tim Houston told reporters about a week after the fall session opened that his government had likely brought forward all of its legislation for sitting. Opposition parties are accusing the progressive conservatives of extending debate hours in order to wrap up the sitting faster and to avoid the daily question period. But Houston says the government is trying to get its work done and is being hindered by opposition tactics he says limit actual debate on bills. Opposition Liberal leader Zach Churchill says he plans to keep the government in the legislature for as long as he can in order to address pressing issues like the housing crisis and a failing health care system. Lisa Laporte, the Canadian Press. Thank you very much, Lisa. That's your look at the regional news. Here comes Brock Richardson to chat about some sports. Brock, the first outdoor NHL game of the season took place in Alberta last night, the NHL Heritage Classic. The Edmonton Oilers beat the Calgary Flames. Who cares about the final outcome of the game? Here's the question, Brock. Do you still care about NHL outdoor games? I have to be honest and tell you that this one I enjoyed because it was the 20th year since the first time they had done uh, a winter class or or an outdoor game, I should say. I liked it because they acknowledged the twenty year history. But overall, Dave, I would say, eh, there's too many outdoor games nowadays. It's kind of lost its luster. And you're right, the game didn't really do much for me at all. Well, the, the the game just looks weird on TV. They use the football stadiums a lot for these games, and the football stadium just doesn't translate super well to TV. Baseball stadiums end up working a lot better as an activity. There's probably a hard limit to how many the NHL should do of these every year, and I'd say it's probably two to three. A Heritage Classic somewhere in Canada, the Winter Classic on New Year's Day or somewhere around New Year's Day like they like to do, and maybe one more specialty game because, Brock, they're at this point where just doing football stadiums or baseball stadiums, it doesn't feel fresh anymore, so they might want to explore more of the unique settings like they did in Lake Tahoe a couple of years ago, where admittedly the ice stunk and they had to postpone the game, so you've got to work out those logistics. But I would suggest they need to start thinking about real, authentic outdoor venues rather than simply just saying, bah, football stadium. Yeah, I agree. I think they're too far up in the number of games that they've used or done now. And I think, you know, I agree with you. I would even say sticking to the hard two would be my my desire. I understand why you want to do the two, but anything more than that it becomes too much. And I lose the interest. I watched up until the end of the first intermission and then just kind of was like, eh, I'm kind yeah. of 
done with this. The, the gimmick wears off. It was 2014 where they did the whole stadium series where I think they did 14 games that year in outdoor environments, which was just many, way, too <laughs> way too many. Okay, Brock, yeah. let's turn to Toronto. Nick Nurse, former Raptors head coach, made his return to Toronto over the weekend, and the Philadelphia 76ers uh, beat up the Toronto Raptors pretty good in that game. But, Brock, you were a little bit uh, peeved about some of the media coverage around Nick Nurse's return. Yes, I saw a couple of headlines that read this. Nurse's return brings mixed feelings to how the Raptors will miss him. Oh, sorry, whether the Raptors will miss him. So this is, to me, it's, it's. I don't know why we're talking about whether we'll miss Nick Nurse or not. Nick Nurse brought us a championship. Nick Nurse moved on. He was checked out of last year. Like, let's just move on. Why do we have to be so headline as to whether we have to wonder whether Nick Nurse, we will miss Nick Nurse. It's just too much. Move on. And even in his press conference at the end of the game over the weekend, he understood his time was come to an end. He knows the Raptors have moved on. And he said, quote, I'm quite happy. So let's just leave Nick Nurse where he is. I wish him all the best. He accomplished what we needed him to. He did a decade of service. And that's fine. But let's forego the headlines of whether we'll miss Nick Nurse or not. Because I think it's irrelevant at this point so you do acknowledge the irony of you saying it's irrelevance and then bringing it to the sports chat topic right yes i totally do okay uh brock busy sunday in the nfl uh 14 games total across the national football league yesterday no team on by this weekend it was uh, pretty overwhelming here's my observation considering there were 28 teams in action yesterday the quarterback play across the league is pitiful so many backups and third stringers making their way across a number of games brock some of this football some of this quarterback play unwatchable and even the good quarterback like Patrick Mahomes of the Kansas City Chiefs is playing with flu-like symptoms and stinking up the joint, probably literally pooping in his pants, losing to the Denver Broncos. Yeah, there, there was a bunch of weird, weird games yesterday. Kansas City falling to Denver, as you mentioned. Sure, flu's a big deal, so I... I you know, I look at him and I say, good for you for trying. Oof, I mean, considering they lost 14 to nine and couldn't do anything offensively, maybe take the day <laughs> off. Like, like, Brock, yeah. this, like, this is a reminder to me that, like, every NFL team needs to have a bona fide backup quarterback. I know they don't grow on trees, but you saw Tennessee trot out two backup quarterbacks yesterday and rookie Will Levis stole the day. Like, he threw four touchdown passes. He was chucking the ball downfield. NFL teams should be drafting and signing high-caliber backup quarterbacks, no matter who your starter is, year in, year yeah, out. Because you're right, the drop-off is is very, very, very noticeable, and it's not good for the NFL product when uh, you have that kind of drop-off. Look, I know you want to have your number one quarterback, I get it, but you're going to have to have somebody you know, of, of at least decent caliber backing them up because there are going to be injuries to quarterbacks and you don't want to see teams go completely to the toilet when your your star quarterback goes down and it's just like oh god we should have had someone else in so yeah i agree with you i think they need to do a little bit more investment and backup quarterback brock the new york giants were down to their third string quarterback yesterday they were playing rookie tommy devito out of the university of syracuse he was a sub-tier sub-par uh, college quarterback i have no idea how he ended up making their practice squad or being their third string quarterback the new york giants net passing yards yesterday so including yards and yard uh, gained from throwing and yards lost from being sacked minus nine 
minus nine yesterday passing yards for the New York Giants in what was one of the worst football games that I've ever ever watched a combined total of 24 punts 24 punts in that game awful awful yeah and you had to watch it for longer too because it went into overtime yeah exactly yeah it was was brutal well that's 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 one of the things people say oh it was a great game it went to overtime it was close no it was a terrible game that ended excitingly in the last eight minutes okay brock one more topic here gotta go fast world series is all square at 1-1 going into game three tonight game one of the world series on friday night was an all-time classic game two was a dud here's hoping for a better game three yeah, what can you say? Uh, Cartel Marte for the Diamondbacks just continues to hit really well. Has a, a playoff hitting streak running at 18. This is just going to be a real, real interesting series. But yeah, I hope Game 3 gets a little bit more when we uh, go to Arizona and play the, the next three games. But so far, I've been over-entertained, over I would say. I would say that the first game really over-entertained me, and then the second one under. But we're I'm still... I'm still plugged in. Yeah, Ketel Marte, uh, that's the uh, all-time record now for a hitting streak in the postseason, although it's a bit of a cheat because it used to be the postseason could only be maximum 14 games because there was only the CS in the World Series. So a little little bit of a cheat there. They've added a lot more rounds, but nonetheless, Ketel Marte deserves his love. He's the uh, Diamondbacks outfielder. Brock, thank you for this. Have a great day. You as well. That's Brock Richardson at the AMI Sports Desk coming up after the break. Apple's October event goes down tonight, showing off some hardware. Stephen Scott will give you the lowdown and ask the question, how fast do you actually need a processor to be on your computer? So long as you can check your email, does it really matter? This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Apple is holding an event tonight. There is speculation over some upgrades around the iMac, MacBooks, desktops, and laptops. Stephen Scott from Double Tap has more on this. Hello, Stephen. Hey, Dave. How are you? (laughs) Stephen, I'm always doing well. Always happy to talk about what's going on in the world of Apple. The tagline for this event, as much as we can pull away from that, is scary fast. And there's talk about processors and chips and all sorts of speed for your device. Stephen, how much speed do we really need? Um... Not as much as we're probably going to be told we need. Um, there's always <laughs> that that disconnect, I think, between what we actually need and what we will get and what we could get. But, of course, Apple is all about growth and accelerating with these new M3 chips. This is the uh, silicon chips that they use when uh, Apple moved away from Intel in early 2020 and actually brought out their own silicon chips, the process of the brain, if you like, inside the computer. And uh, that has steadily been moving up in here and ramping up with these new products and m3 is what we're likely to see today okay i but i but i kind of come back to this question right in in real day-to-day terms if if unless you're what 
editing video or mining for Bitcoin, does power even matter? And frankly, even if you're editing video, does it really matter? Well, it's a great question because, of course, the base level Mac, for example, which came out in 2020, has still been and will continue to be probably a, a more than decent piece of hardware for most people. Uh, do we need to go any further than that? No. Uh, what the reality is, though, is that as the processes develop, the applications that work and use that process also develop. So what you'll find is that over the years, those processes will start to feel slow, will start to feel sluggish, even on you know, applications that were fine beforehand. They will suddenly start to feel a little bit slower because basically the applications are pulling more and more from the resources of the computer. And that is why and how essentially we end up in this position where people do feel the need to upgrade. We're talking here high end, okay? We're talking yeah, here, we're yeah. not talking base level. Apple don't do base level of anything, really. We're talking here about high end machines. And, and today it is likely we're going to see two new MacBooks and also a new iMac, which is arguably sitting in that middle ground between the you know, someone who's just browsing the web and someone who's a creator. Mm. I, the iMac, listen, the iMac is a awesome device. I remember I bought one back in 2008 that basically lasted me, Steve, no, 2007, that basically lasted me without issue till about 2015, 2016. Like we're talking about almost a decade, that machine did everything I needed it to do with ease. Yeah. But there are, you mentioned that maybe applications might start pulling more power from the computer. There's also some conspiratorial thinking, I'm just going to say conspiratorial, that gives us room for a little bit of reckless speculation here, that some of the software updates will deliberately strain a piece of hardware. What's your reaction to that conspiracy, that, that maybe Apple is releasing a new operating system or an update to their operating system that's actually deliberately meant to choke the existing piece of hardware and, and limit its power? Well, it's interesting. I think there is an argument for that, and there certainly has been evidence of it when it came to the iPhone. That was something that wasn't a conspiracy. That was real. That was actually happening. Uh, they were throttling older iPhones as a result of new software updates. Now, whether or not this happening on the Mac, it's harder to tell because the truth is with a Mac, when it reaches the point where it can no longer run the latest software, it will no longer support that, and that means you will not be able to use the latest operating system. So that iMac, for example, that you bought in 2007 will not be running the very latest and greatest macOS Sonoma today. It's not going to be, and it wouldn't even be able to. You wouldn't get the option to even upgrade to it. So in a way, they kind of almost cap off the capability of the machine, which I think is a better way of doing it because then the machine, in theory, can last longer running at its optimal power. So I'm kind of all for it on the Mac front, but definitely there was evidence of this when it came to iPhones in the past, and that's something Apple admitted to. Stephen, you've talked about this before. From your perspective as someone who's almost completely blind or completely blind, screen size doesn't matter to you. Screen size matters to me. And I'm really fond of the idea that Mac has found a middle ground because it used to be that you had to buy either sort of the 21-inch or 19-inch computer or like the 27, 28-inch computer. They seem to have landed on 24 inches right now. And to me, that just strikes me as like the perfect screen size for an all-in-one desktop computer. I think 
think it is actually. I think I think that's what they've done, and it also I think it's because they're likely to bring out a new thirty-two inch version, <laughs> so they essentially upgrade the ah. whole lot. Uh, so you're going to get the twenty-four inch version, which is over my left shoulder as as we sit here in my uh, little studio, and uh, it's a lovely machine. It's a beautiful machine to use. Now you're right. I don't care about the screen size. I am absolutely. I, the conversations on our show over the past couple of weeks, Dave, about this whole iMac thing, because I've talked about buying a new iMac. And people are saying, why do you want an iMac? What on earth do you need the iMac for? It's got this big, beautiful screen you're never going to use. I'm going to just turn the screen off. But you know what I do like is that single cable to the power supply yes. that gives me everything all in one. Speakers, microphone, uh, webcam is in there, and it's a good webcam as well. You've got it all in a very nice and tidy setup. I think it's a perfect little machine. But of course, most people are blind to probably buy laptops. I certainly am. Or the Mac Mini. The Mac Mini is the most popular among totally blind people. Uh, and that's what I'm talking to you on right now. I love my Mac Mini. Yeah, the Mac Mini it's is just, also it's a great little workhorse. Yeah, that does the job. But but like you say, wire management can really matter, especially from the perspective of someone who's either, in my case, uh, legally blind, or in your case, a little bit further deep on the blindness scale. What whatever you can do to limit the amount of wires going everywhere goes a long way. Desk management, desk space management is a big deal. Absolutely. Uh, although I will say this: if you buy a standing desk, just remember to be careful with the cables because I nearly lost my iMac when I raised up my uh, standing desk and the, the Mac started sliding to the back of it. And I was, ah! Just very quickly <laughs> caught it and, and no more. Or otherwise, that would have been a tragic end to a piece of Apple kit, which I don't think I could have. I could live after that, to be honest. <laughs> I'd have to personally write an apology letter to Tim Cook. Uh, Stephen, one last question on wire management, then I'll ask you what's coming up on today's edition of Double Tap on AMI-audio. Uh, I'm still someone who likes to wire my mouse and wire my, my keyboard to my computer because I also have a one-piece computer, but it's not, a, uh, it's not of the Apple variety. It's of a different uh, brand name. But I still like to wire my actual uh, mouse and keyboard into the mix. Are you fully Bluetoothed across your computer accessories at this point? I am, but I'm with you. I prefer wired. I use a Logitech MX Keys keyboard, which is my favorite keyboard. I don't use a mouse, but I do have one, which is Bluetooth that rarely ever is on. So I can have it there and just turn it off and on as if I need it for whatever purpose. But it is there just as a safeguard. Some computers don't like it if you don't have a mouse connected. So it's always good to have one. But I think it's interesting. We're likely to see today as well some upgrades to the Magic Keyboard and the Magic Mouse at the Apple event. Whether it's a redesign, I don't know, but certainly there's talk of certainly it becoming a USB-C product along with everything else that Apple are now producing. Uh, and I just want to remind you, because they have to, because <laughs> basically the big bad EU, the European Union, told them to do it, so they have to do it. They'll, they'll, I'm sure they'll come up with fantastic marketing around it. You know, it's a new design, it's a new style, it's so much easier. Yeah, we did it because we had to. <laughs> From the goodness of our hearts, we have made our hardware USB-C compatible. Although, Stephen, you're out there in uh, Scotland and the UK. Uh, you don't need to be bound by the, the evil EU. Uh, you can live your own life now. That's right. I, I, that's why I would say, I say sovereignty it just makes life so much better. That's why our country is doing so well. Hang on, <laughs> what? Oh, no, I've just heard uh, it's not going so well. Sorry. <laughs> Turns out it's not going so well anywhere, Stephen. Uh, Stephen, what, but you know what is going well? Another edition of Double Tap on AMI-audio. As I like to say, one of my absolute pleasures every day is when that gets piped into my room uh, across from AMI-audio's audio control room. What do you and Sean have on deck for today? 
Well, it's more of our listener feedback, and I have to say some rather sarcastic comments about my, my thoughts on the IMAX coming up today. I think uh, a few people are going to get awards for uh, for their sarcasm, so looking forward to getting into that. Also, uh, lots of interesting conversations on a whole wide range of things that people have been engaging in, of course. For me, though, the big topic is the Apple event this week. That is happening at 5pm Pacific, 8pm Eastern, and here in the UK, thanks to the time change, because Europe goes uh, to winter an hour uh, or a week before Canada does, um, it's now at midnight as opposed to 1am so you know, small messes. Hey, that's the, that. That's a victory. I, I I also benefited from time zones this weekend. There was a huge heavyweight boxing fight on Saturday night between Tyson Fury and uh, and Francis Ngannou that was taking place in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia. So as a result, the main event started at six thirty p.m. Eastern time. Stephen, I could very much get used to a major events occurring in my life at six thirty p.m. Eastern time instead of uh, midnight <laughs> or one a.m. Absolutely, we want to get to your bed early, Dave. You've got your beauty sleep to think about. <laughs> Even on a Saturday night, Stephen, I still look for an early bedtime. Stephen, thank you for this. Have a great day. Enjoy the event tonight. Thanks, Dave. Catch you soon. <laughs> That's Stephen Scott, one of the co-hosts of Double Tap. You can find that show weekdays at noon Eastern time on AMI-audio. You can follow the Double Tap team on Double Tap team on Twitter at Double Tap on air at Double Tap on air. Coming up after the break, Artificial intelligence, duplicates, clones, celebrities, AI in the music space, all that coming up in Elizabeth Moeller's roundtable topic. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Nisreen Abdel-Majid and Ramya Amuthan are standing by for Elizabeth Moeller to ask a roundtable question all about artificial intelligence in the music industry. Yes, so Mark Twan, who's a former singer of the band K-pop, he created a digital avatar for fans to interact directly with called, well, Digital Mark. And he is the first celebrity to attach their likeness to chat gpt's open ai configuration so i thought we could talk about that today remy i'm going to start with you what do you make of artists creating a digital avatar for fans to interact with I'm, i have some black mirror vibes uh, going on here but i'd love to hear your thoughts yeah i mean for me i think back at the way that people have reacted to um the kind of uh, uh, not VR, but, you know, when uh, Prince Avatar came out for the halftime show and it, just the kind of way that everybody was all over the place with it. You know, this is sacrilege. This is so inappropriate. And we're doing this uh, to a man who is no longer with us. So I think that we're beyond that a little bit now because, you know, so much time has come for us to... Um, think about these things to mm. be exposed to deep fakes and all these other just like ways that we uh, can take in entertainment without uh, i guess acknowledging that it's not real people that are giving us the entertainment right you can take the ideas take the creative and uh put some someone else's voice and face in it and call it entertainment that we're 
whether or not we agree that that's a thing, I, we're definitely mo- more exposed to it now. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. so the idea of an avatar doesn't seem so far fetched. Um, but it's the resistance for me personally, that it doesn't feel like the artists themselves. And I often ask this question because, you know, now we're talking about the Taylor Swift movie, for example, like it's not watching her at concert but watching the careful concert now. on careful. TV. I know, okay, I know, you're going, I know. You're going I'm after my girl the Swizzler. I know. <laughs> I don't know. But I'm saying it is kind of in that same vein for me where it's not the artist themselves. So what we're paying for and you know we can pay reduced prices or uh, the the actual kind of experience that we're having maybe with VR headsets means that we just have to come to terms with it not being the artist, the person, the real life itself and if you can get on board with that then cool i uh yeah. I, I'm, I'm gonna put your taylor swift thought to the side here for a second ramya because because i i do think there's a counter there but i think it's sort of moving away a little bit from like the broader point here which is the world that you live in and that we live in is not as real as we think it is especially in the digital world there yes. are so many artists that already are hiring brand managers to do their social media stuff that when you think oh gosh so and so retweeted me or so and so replied and said thank you to the kind tweet that i sent there's a good chance that it's their that some intern on their promotions team who's doing that for you. So there's already a disingenuous way in which we, as the consumer, are interacting with celebrity. But Nazreen, I think this side of it, when it turns into the robotic side of it, that's when it starts to feel really, really, really disingenuous because now it's not even someone who maybe that artist or their team hired to engage in this disingenuous interaction. Now it's just you talking to an algorithm and don't get me wrong, I've had a couple conversations with Chat GPT on a lonely Saturday afternoon, but I oh, but I Dave. but I, but I make but I make I make no uh, I have no misconceptions of what's happening in that moment. Whereas this feels like a even more disingenuous. Yeah, and, and I get that. I uh, I feel like I'm not surprised at this point. Um, it's harmless for now, but yeah, I you know before it was either the artist or an intern or an assistant or the receptionist or whoever they are connected to that artist. And now you're just talking to the algorithm, as you, as you said, so it's harmless for now, but I feel like we're going to get too caught up and what's it going to say afterwards after uh chat GBT, what then? And don't forget that it's not their personality it's literally a robot. So I'm just wondering how this is going to work out in terms of, you know, actually communicating with uh, chat GPT and well, avatar. Well, it might, it might be their personality because the algorithm is going to take uh, their, their responses or the history of their learned language behavior and try to boil that into a response it's going to give you. But Elizabeth, I just feel like it's a really disingenuous interaction. Like, like, like whether or not yeah. it's like, their personality, the it doesn't really like, matter. Yeah. Yeah. Like for me as a, as a fan, I think, okay, but like, what's the point? Like, what am I, Myself, entertainment. Elizabeth, like, what am I getting out of this? Like, like entertainment, I suppose. But like, uh, for me personally, like, I would just rather listen to the to the their album or listen to uh, YouTube. Like, I just think, okay, like it's fun. But like, beyond fun for me personally, I'm like, I don't know that I would. You know, it, it's interesting, but I I'm not sure about it. Sort of, yeah. Um, you know, it's it's applicability in my life. But an interesting thought for sure. 
I, you know, I, I want to add something. Go ahead, Ms. Rain. Yes. I'm go sorry to interrupt, but I'm just, I, I understand where you're coming from. And I agree with you, Elizabeth, that I feel like there's no point. And, and it comes to the point where, okay, what next? Right. But I have yeah. some friends who are so addicted, so, um, mm. so obsessed with an artist that they'll, Interesting. they'll, they'll have every type of information yeah. you want to know. And it's the creepiest thing ever. I'm not like that. Trust me. Where the, <laughs> they'll, find out, <laughs> they'll find out how many eyebrow hairs they have. They'll find out their <laughs> shoe size. Wow. I don't know what the point of it is. I don't know what the point of it is. They'll like, it comes to the point where it's just plain entertainment. It's to keep them busy is to keep mm -hmm. them you know, mm -hmm. constantly getting, I don't know if it, it is like that. It's, it is, it's a distraction for them and it's to kind of satisfy their needs of yeah. getting that attention. Yeah. yeah I, I think, yeah. I think that's, what's important here. I think in terms of like the really like granular detail on this, the entertainment industry, uh, in terms of who you may want to interact with on your time online, who are any of us to judge how somebody wants to spend their time and if they want to interact with a Prince avatar or a Harry Styles mm -hmm. avatar or whoever avatar, does it really matter? But Ramya, then it gets more to the question that you were posing about the presence of AI in the music industry. I don't necessarily mind the idea of AI writing me a pop punk song, but I don't like the idea of AI necessarily taking existing artists work and then doing their own thing with it and kind of claiming yeah, it as their agree. own and but fundamentally that's where ai is pulling the information from ai is exactly. not a creative endeavor it's simply stealing a bunch of creativity and repackaging it yeah and that's yeah. the same thing with deep fakes except it's mostly up until this point humans who put this stuff together right the voices and faces of people who already exist out there and then the, you, you repackage it in entertaining ways i will say though i've paid more attention to the opposite of nisreen what you're pointing out so not the obsessed um crowd and and fandom which is obviously out there and clearly especially for huge artists we know that they have just massive fan bases and you know how deep and scary that can get but i've also noticed that we've been a bit more detached to authentic and genuine art and that's why i keep bringing up this like we're exposed to it already this is out there the yeah. it's for the sake mm -hmm. of entertainment but it doesn't necessarily mean it has to be attached with authentic artistic endeavor and you know then it spins to what do we consider art? okay if it's entertaining and somebody else put it together and uh, you know you're talking about claiming and rights dave all that stuff, I think, is just hitting a new level of it either non-existent or slowly, slowly, we're going to yeah. get to a point where we can't fight mm -hmm. about these things anymore. There's too much going on, too much out there, and almost everybody has access to everything. So how do we claim our art, right? Yeah. Like, how do we say this is mine and this is yours? It's going to be completely chaotic it already is and it more broadly begs the question which has been going on for 5,000 years like since human civilization started putting stick drawings on walls and carving yeah. things into walls yeah is yeah. art for the artist or is art for the consumer mm -hmm. and I want to leave it on that thought I want everyone to walk away pondering that question is art for the artist themselves as their own expression or is art for the consumer elizabeth nizreen thank you both for this ramya before i say goodbye to you you are the host of kelly and ramya which hits the airwaves at 2 p.m eastern time on ami later today what's coming up on the show 
We are talking about season four of Level Playing Field because it's airing Tuesdays on AMI-TV and we're joined by a special guest on the program, mm. Paralympian Marissa Papa-Constantino. She's been doing really well for herself uh, as a sprinter and we want to talk to her, see what's up. Also, winter weather is here in Dawson City. I just want to close my ears and not hear that at all but anyways it's here and we're going to talk about it with community reporter kim hovey because there's a lot of stuff going on they're in love with their winter <laughs> surprise surprise, surprise that the yukon in uh, late know, october right? has uh, has winter coming up winter surprise surprise planned and yeah. ready to go exactly <laughs> uh, also know your rights the topic with danielle mclaughlin and her um uh guest kelly modernit who's the president of ontario bar association is the conversation around peer support network works for lawyers with disabilities right on Ramya sounds like a great show have a great day talk to you tomorrow talk to you tomorrow that's Ramya Emuthan tomorrow by the way it's Halloween less than 24 hours away there's still time to make your house more inclusive for trick-or-treaters with disabilities Rich Perdulo from Treat Accessibly will offer up some tips and tricks this is now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Halloween is tomorrow. It's supposed to be a fun time for everyone, kids, adults, and everyone in between. There are kids with disabilities who end up being excluded. So how can you make your home more inclusive? Rich Padula is the founder of Treat Accessibly. He has some tips and tricks to share Rich, it's great to have you back on the program. So nice to talk to you again. Thank you so much for having me. Happy Halloween. Happy Halloween. Rich, the first time you and I connected was in October of 2019. The next, right. the next year, 40,000 homes participated in Treat yep. Accessibly. The pumpkin has kept rolling since. How would you describe <laughs> how Treat Accessibly has grown? Oh, that's great, Dave. Yeah, um, I think this year, uh, based on... Do yourself printing. The number of signs we've handed out since 2018 were at close to 200,000 uh, homes participating in Treat Accessibly. And uh, that puts us about halfway to our goal by 2025, having 400,000 homes participating, one for every child that identifies with a mobility, sensory, or intellectual disability. So we're pretty, I, I mean, a lot of gratitude. Um, it's wonderful. Why do you think people are responding so favorably to this? I know the progress might even feel a little bit slow, but I mean, the growth has been exponential. Why, why, why do you think people are connecting to this? Uh, you know, I, I genuinely believe the first time you treat excessively and you have a child uh, that you've helped and a parent of a child you have helped approach you and thank you, uh, you never go back. And you also become the advocate for the movement the same way my wife, daughter, and I became an advocate. Uh, we just needed it to happen once. And um, you become as passionate about it as we do and uh, every day. So it's just, I just think it's, Halloween is an intergenerational movement. It's something 
that or how not a different uh, a tradition intergenerational tradition and you love it as a child you participate in it as an adult um you love it again as a parent and then when you're in the empty nest stage you're you're still participating in it and you love every phase of it and to think a child couldn't have that when so many people do i think that kind of positively puts people up in arms and they uh they uh, are shaken out of apathy and they want to do something to help. And uh, treating from the end of your driveway takes about 90% of the barriers away. So it's it's relatively easy uh, to do. And uh, it's really fun once you do it once. Rich, you hit it right there. That, of course, it feels good to include people. That's number one, right? The first time you see a kid smile because they got to do Halloween, like that is going right. to resonate and be good for the soul. But you also touched on it there. Making Halloween more inclusive, making your house more accessible, right. it's actually pretty straightforward. There, there's some really basic things that someone can do to make their home accessible and give that joy to a young person and their family. So what are those broad strokes? What are those basics on how somebody should prepare between now and tomorrow night to make sure more kids can have a lovely yeah. Halloween? Absolutely. Um, well, the first stage is visit the website. And it gives you all the tips and tricks and the tips and the tricks have been uh, created by accessibility professionals um, from intellectual to mobility and sensory. Uh, next is uh, get or print your own lawn sign. If you're printing your own lawn sign, print a few of them, put them on a stick, put them at the end of the lawn. This identifies your home as one that will treat accessibly in advance of Halloween. And that's good for neighbors driving by um some neighbors may share with family or friends who don't live in the area so that's great uh next is treat from the end of your driveway or in your garage uh we've seen some very fun um uh, takes on the experience whether it be people going at the end of their lawn what oh there's some great graphics here of people treating from the end of their driveway um they uh have those portable fireplaces portable heaters um, uh, they use tents, uh, they go all out and decorate their car as like giants and they <laughs> open back their car and all of a sudden, uh, they put teeth in it. So it looks like a dragon's mouth. It's really, it actually adds a lot of fun to the process. But one of the things that, you know, accessibility, it proves again, accessibility way is the right way is it really shares a sense of community that I think has been lost, uh, not just because of COVID, but in general. Um, I feel uh, people always say it was better when I was a kid, but I do remember um, running the streets at Halloween when I was little and every neighbor was out and chatting. And mm. that's kind of we hearken back to with this movement. It's a community movement. It's one where we remove the closed doors, we remove the stairs, and uh, it's kind of becomes like a block party every time you have a post to treat excessively Halloween village. It, it not kind of, it is. Yeah, and yeah. It's something that I, I really love to see and people really love to do. Like we do nine treat excessively Halloween villages across the country now. 15,000 kids and parents came out to them in the nine cities and Every single city wants to do them again. The second the event is done, they ask to do it again. 
And um, yeah, we just repeat it every year and it just grows and it's so much fun. Uh, it's so much fun. And uh, yeah, so broad strokes, put a sign on your lawn, go to the end of your driveway, no jarring noise. Music's fine because as people approach your location, the music sort of starts to raise in volume based on their proximity to your location. So it's not jarring or frightening. Uh, no strobe lights, nothing that has shocking lights to it. Um, yeah, it's actually, it's pretty reasonable because as much as I love Halloween, I don't like getting scared and things that jump out and uh, <laughs> and have loud noise are frightening, even to the adults. And our hearts can't deal with that the way kids are. So let's, let's avoid those things in general for rich. As, as I rapidly approach my mid midlife crisis as well, uh, <laughs> my heart also can't take those ones. Rich, yeah. you, you know, you're talking about that community building side of this. And I, I'm just, I'm so here for community building because that, yes. that stuff really matters. And even when I think yeah. about the lighting side of this, just saying, hey, good, steady lighting. Not too bright, not yeah. too strobey, not too dark. Yeah. There's only about a minute left here, Rich, but I think about yeah. lighting is such a big thing because Absolutely. it's warm, it's welcoming, and I think it also yeah. makes the community safer for the kids if everybody's got their driveways nice and well lit in a nice steady way on Halloween night. Absolutely. The, also, the good part about doing things by the end of your driveway is you benefit from the streetlights that are already there. Um, so that kind of lights up the background and, uh, we have a wonderful, uh, series of other tips on the website, uh, that are more into the specific logistical stuff, but that's the broad strokes. And, um, before we, we, uh, sign off, I wanted to share one thing with the 5,000 families across Canada. Um, we, uh, gifted a book. It's called Atticus Goes Trick-or-Treating. Atticus is a real little boy. The grandmother of the book uh, created the origin story um, for Treat Accessibly, but made Atticus the hero. So I want to shout out to Atticus, uh, who's the hero of the story. Your book was given to every seating minister in Ontario, and the story was shared by my daughter, Sienna, and they are going to make an effort not only to champion Treat Accessibly in Ontario, but across Canada to other ministers of accessibility. And um, we're going to win next right year. Be... Yeah. Rich, this has been just an amazing effort from you and your colleagues and your friends and your supporters and the folks at Remax lending a hand as well. Yeah. All the best to you. Happy Halloween, sir. Thank you. Thank you, Dave. Adios. Happy Halloween. That's Rich Padulo, the founder of Treat Accessibly. You need to learn more. Visit treataccessibly.com. Treataccessibly.com to learn more. That's all the time there is for the show today. Talk to you again tomorrow at 9 a.m. Eastern time. Until then, I'm Dave Brown reminding you to play safe, play fair, but don't forget to have some fun. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Join me every couple weeks for the Outdoors with Lawrence Gunther podcast, where we learn about outdoor tech and tips. Plus, we look at news affecting the environment. AMI's Outdoors with Lawrence Gunther is available from your favorite podcast provider.